0: Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said, this incident in the Gospel of Mark is the first event in Jesus' public ministry. It's a sermon he gives at the synagogue in the small town of Capernaum, which is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, about 25 miles northeast of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. From the instant he opens his mouth, the congregation realizes that he is something they have never heard before. He mesmerizes the congregation with his magnetic presence and with his compelling message about the kingdom of God. The five-year-old who's been coloring the children's bulletin puts her crayons aside and snaps to attention. The ancient shopkeep in the back row who usually uses the sermon as an excuse for a 20-minute nap suddenly isn't sleepy anymore. This preacher cannot be ignored. Mark tells us that Jesus taught as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And I love Mark's subtle sense of humor and the gentle poke he takes at the religious establishment. Jesus, says Mark, taught as if he knew something and not like those bozos they had to listen to most weeks. That's not an exact translation, but it'll do. And so Jesus is cruising through this Academy Award-winning presentation of a sermon when suddenly a wild-eyed guy in the sixth row from the pulpit on the left suddenly starts shouting at him. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. The poor guy is possessed with what Mark calls an unclean spirit. And the metaphor is apt. This is good, pure, human bone and blood and sinew and synapse. Adulterated, tainted polluted by an unseen presence. Now, don't let Mark's primitive, unfashionable, first-century language throw you off. All Mark's trying to tell us is that earthly malady has an unearthly dimension. Visible disease, destruction, and death have an invisible component. Physical malady has a metaphysical ingredient. Sometimes they think there's a wisdom to ancient, simpler, primitive sensibilities that contemporary rationalism relinquishes. Andrew Pryor is a pastor in Adelaide, Australia. He spent part of his earlier life serving with Aboriginal native peoples in Australia, and even now that he's serving a church in the city, he still goes back to be with his friends in the outback a couple of times a year. He helps them to build windmills and wells and whatnot. And when he goes on these missions, he always takes his family. And when they do this work, they camp out under the stars in sleeping bags. And once he went to be with his outback friends, and it was black ant season. During a part of the year in Australia, these black ants swarm and bite and get into everything. So after the first day's work, they're looking for a place to lay their sleeping bags that doesn't have any ant. Ants. So they drive a few miles out of town and they finally come upon an ant-free patch of ground and they pitch their sleeping bags and light their campfire and all night long not one ant bothers them. But the young son in the family, David, has horrible nightmares all night long. And Andrew the pastor says that just beyond the farthest edge of the campfire's light, the sky is cast with a ghostly, sickly, gray pallor. And in the morning when they return to their native friends, they tell their story, and the natives say, well, where did you camp? And when they were told where it was, the natives said, well, why did you camp there? That's Mamu. That's the place of evil spirits. And Andrew says, well, we camped there because there weren't any ants. And the natives said, of course not. Even the ants are smart enough not to hang out with the (laughs) evil spirits. I don't know what you want to do with that spooky story or with the spooky story that Mark tells in the first chapter of his gospel, but here it is. Now, who knows what it was from a medical or scientific perspective that was haunting this troubled guy who shouts out at Jesus in the middle of his sermon. Schizophrenia, maybe, or some other garden variety of mental illness. But the gospel's point is that whatever it is physically, cerebrally, it is so odd and so enigmatic and so inscrutable as to be unearthly. It seems inhuman. It seems almost extraterrestrial. It's not from around here. Evil's like that sometimes. Last week, the Islamic State broadcast a public edu- ed- execution which was so barbaric that Al Qaeda was horrified. Now, how do you shock Al Qaeda? This is an evil that we can't grip. It escapes us. It's beyond us. It's larger than us. And so, to make sense of the insensible, we personify the inscrutable maladies that afflict us. We give them speech and personality and motivation, even though we know that there is no such thing, literally, as an unclean spirit or a demon. In 2003, Siddhartha Mukherjee was serving as a fellow in the oncology department at the Dana-Farber Institute in Boston. And he was so overwhelmed by the fear and pain and confusion caused by this disease that he felt he needed to understand the beast he was up against. And so he wrote this book that he called Emperor of All Maladies. Isn't that the greatest title ever? Emperor of All Maladies. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011. But it's the subtitle I'm interested in this morning. Dr. Mukherjee calls his book, Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer. Can you write a biography of an insensible, unthinking disease? But Dr. Mukherjee says he wants to enter the mind of this immortal illness to understand its, now get this, to understand its personality, to demystify its behavior. He wants to understand its personality. And 2,000 years ago, St. Mark is trying to do the same thing, enter the mind of an immortal disease. And so Mark gives the power of speech to this unclean spirit. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. Don't you love that little twist that Mark gives us in the story? Unexpectedly, it's Jesus' mortal enemy who gets him first and best. It's his enemy who first understands who he is and what he means. You're the Holy One of God, says the unclean spirit. The demon knows Jesus better than the disciples do. He terrifies them. They run. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, shouts the demon at Jesus right in the middle of his sermon, and Jesus answers this blunt question with, be silent and get out of him. Be silent and be gone. Or at least that's the way your pew Bibles translate the Greek. Actually, what Jesus says is, would you put a muzzle on it? That's literally what Jesus says. Put a lid on it. Shut up. Chill out, shut up, and be gone. And after convulsing the poor troubled congregant with a violent grand mal seizure, the demon flees his worthy antagonist in abject horror to trouble some other poor bloke in a place where Jesus can't get at him or her or it or them or whatever it is. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of Israel. His enemies understand him better than his friends. They flee in horror from his presence. As it turns out, Jesus himself turns out to be the emperor over all maladies. Now, it's not as if the battle is won Once and for all, it's not as if the unclean spirits have retreated and disappeared. Have you ever been in church when an unclean spirit faced down the kingdom of God? A friend of mine was once a long time ago, the associate pastor at a Christian congregation in Wheaton, Illinois. This is during the 1960s, during the Civil Rights Crusade. Young and unafraid and perhaps a little oblivious, my friend gets up in the pulpit one Sunday morning and announces that he thinks that anybody who can afford a down payment on a home in this village should be able to get a mortgage here, no matter what color they are. On Monday morning, the senior pastor met the associate pastor outside of his office with his belongings in a cardboard box, and said, your services are no longer needed in this congregation. Can you hear the eloquent sermon and the raucous interruption? What have you to do with us, disciple of Jesus Christ? You've come to destroy us. You've come to change our lives. the battle's not over and the forces of darkness are not evidently in retreat under the onslaught of Christ's kingdom. Unstinting malice still stalks Syria, Iraq, and Africa. We still lose lifelong loves to the persistence of pestilence or to the ambush of accident. Out of nowhere, depression falls fiercely on our friend like one of the dementors from a Harry Potter story and he begins to question the value of his existence. Our hearts break. These things are larger than we are. But then we remember that Jesus of Nazareth is the Holy One of Israel and that he's come to rout all that threatens human existence and it's our task to stand by his side in the shelter of his mighty wings and do what we can. A young woman named Sue remembers her childhood in rural Idaho. She and her older brother had an old horse, and her brother John would pretend to be Paul Revere. The British are coming, the British are coming, he'd shout from the the back of that old nag. He's always staging little dramas like that in the countryside of their rural Idaho youth. But then when Sue is in the 7th grade and her older brother John in the 8th, he begins to lose weight and has abdominal pain. And not long after that, the doctors tell the family that the young man has Brickett's lymphoma, which is extremely serious. And Sue says that her brother keeps telling jokes and trying to keep everybody happy, But in retrospect, he must have known that his time on this earth would be pretty short. And so on what turns out to be the last day of his life, they take John out of the intensive care unit, out into the larger hospital so that he can say goodbye to his little sister. Because back in those days, children weren't allowed in the intensive care unit. And when they get out there, John sends Susie off to look for some banana popsicles. It's their favorite food in the whole world, banana popsicles. And John says, goodbye, Susie. And she goes off to find the popsicles. And then she finds out that he sent her off so that she won't have to see the end. And as she tells her story, you can see that this is the most important event in her life. And always will be. She thinks of this every day. And she asks more of herself than anyone else, how do you start over after something like that? How do you fit this loss into your life? How do you bring John back to life? That's the way she puts it. How do you bring your brother back to life? And then she answers her own question. She says, I became a palliative care physician. It's my job to walk with patients through the last days of their lives and to make that time as rewarding and comfortable as possible. That's the work I do. And in this work, I keep John alive. I'm surrounded by all this death and loss, but I keep my brother alive. I keep my patients alive. I honor them because, she says, History's not over, right? My work keeps John alive, she says. And when I heard about that physician's calling to palliative medicine, I heard whispers of resurrection and intimations of immortality. We may not have the power over life and death as he does, But we can stand in the shadow of his mighty wings and face down the forces of darkness that are really much larger than we are and do what we can to fight for life. So, what unearthly malady is he calling you to face down? That's something to think about in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.